Uh, well, we're going to continue in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 10, we're in chapter 10, we're into the double digits now. We, it won't be long until we get to the end, but we're going to be looking at Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18 this morning. And the title of the sermon uh, is Jesus is Better. Jesus is better. In fact, if, if you've ever um, listened to uh, sermons on the book of Hebrews, or maybe you've, you've gotten a book and read, th- this is often a title that, that's used as, as the theme or a summary statement of Hebrews. And it's right. This is the sentence that could, could summarize the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. In fact, that's been the theme through these first nine chapters. He's better. He's a better word than the prophet spoke, we saw. We saw that he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And the, the rest he offers is better than the rest Joshua offered. He's, he's He's a better high priest than Aaron or any of Aaron's descendants. He's, he's like Melchizedek, but he's better than Melchizedek. And he's established a better covenant than the old covenant that's built on better promises than the old covenant. He's entered a better sanctuary by, a, by the nature of his better sacrifice. Jesus is better. And we've seen that throughout the book of Hebrews thus far. And the passage we're looking at today, I titled this one, Jesus is Better, because verses 1 through 18 of chapter 10 make that point very clearly. And what we come to in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, is the conclusion of a section that started in verse 1 of chapter 9. And from chapter 9, verse 1, through verse 18 of chapter 10, this section focuses on the superiority of this new covenant and the blood of the new covenant. The focus has been on the superior priesthood and sacrifice of Christ and and the establishment of this new covenant. And so the passage today is the the climax or the culmination of this section. And the superiority of this new covenant is the theme, the, the betterness, if you will, of Jesus is reached here. The climax of the betterness of Christ is reached in this passage and, and it's reached that the the betterness I don't know if that's a word but I'm going to keep saying that the betterness of Jesus is established by drawing this this stark contrast between old covenant sacrifices and the old covenant priestly ministry and the new covenant sacrifice and ministry of Jesus and, and then the the lasting effect of this so so this passage makes this final point by 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 showing the contrast the the difference between the two and the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant will rise above with no question here in this conclusion and then next, next week, Lord willing, we'll continue in our study in Hebrews because he leaves this section and he begins exhorting the, 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 the believers there. And so he, he's calling his, 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 his readers to take action. We're going to look at that next week. I think it'll be a great passage for Resurrection Sunday. It, it'll be a great um, passage that, that we can be encouraged by. So we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week um, in chapter 10. But, but this week... Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look through them. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, you can look along in your Bible. I do have uh, the, the verses on the screen. You can follow along up there. But Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1 through 18, the author of Hebrews writes this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we, we recognize, I recognize these truths are so simple, so fundamental to our faith, so basic it'd be easy to, to cover them and move on, but, but I pray that wouldn't be the case. I pray that these truths would, would be truths that, that go deep into our bones, truths that become part of our identities, who we are at our core, truths that shape our lives and that shape our perspective on this world and our life. I pray that the new covenant hope that has come through Christ, the forgiveness of sins that has come through him alone, would give us hope and joy and peace and love. And so we confess, we worship the one true God who has revealed himself in the person of the Son, who entered in Jerusalem on a donkey. We cry our hearts this morning, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the one who's come in the name of the Lord. And so I pray, even just as this morning, as, as we enter this building, there were dark clouds of rain and darkness. We now have seen out our windows. The sun has risen. And so I pray that, that the, 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 the sun of the gospel would, would shine on our hearts this morning through these truths, that we would have joy because of what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've got four parts, four sections here in, in these verses, and so let me lay out the outline, and then we'll work through them one at a time. So, so we're going to see, remember, there's a contrast through this whole passage. So first, we're going to see the nature of lawful sacrifice, and so the, the sacrifice that were, according, that were offered according to the law, we're going to see the nature of those in verses 1 through 4. Then in contrast, the second section, the nature of Christ's sacrifice in verses 5 through 10. And then the nature of priestly sacrifice, the, the, or priestly service, that's the third section where he, he compares the old and the new in, in those verses, 11 through 14. And then finally, he concludes with the new covenant hope, which it's hard to read verses 15 through 18 and not be greatly encouraged if you're a believer in Christ. And so, so that's where we'll end in verses 15 through 18, the new covenant hope. So let's start there, verses one through four, the nature of lawful sacrifice. And remember, he's setting up this contrast 
And so what he does in, in verses one through four is he, he lays out the limited or the ineffective nature of the old covenant, of the sacrifices that were offered according to the old. And he does that in verses one through four to then highlight verses five through 10, the, the superior nature of Christ's sacrifice. And so, so the, the limited or ineffective nature of lawful sacrifice that we see there starting in verse one. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So notice first, the law has but a shadow. Maybe your translation says the law is only a shadow. It's only a shadow of what? Of the good things to come, which as if, we, if we've been following along in the book of Hebrews, the good things to come is Christ and the new covenant. And so it's the, he says the old, the law is but a shadow of the good things to come. And so the law and, and all of it, this is all that's included with it. It's, it's required sacrifices. The author of Hebrews says was only a shadow. And so the law and all the sacrifices he, he, is, he is communicating were only pointers. They were never meant to last. Shadows are not permanent. They change. They go away. They were never the reality. The, the law and the sacrifices were never meant to be permanent. They were not the substance and so since the law was only anticipatory of the good things that are coming, it itself possesses no enduring or final significance. And so when the author of Hebrews says that the law is only a shadow, he's establishing its temporary nature. It was never meant to last. And since it's only a shadow, since it's only temporary, since it was, since it was always meant to foreshadow something better that was coming, it is limited. It can't accomplish what is most needed. That's why he says it can never because it's a shadow, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the point. They would they'd offer sacrifices. They would draw near through the sacrifices. And so the lawful sacrifices under the old covenant were limited. They could not perfect those who drew near. In other words, the sacrifices that were offered year after year after year, they couldn't fix the problem. And that's his whole point. It can't fix the problem. A shadow law cannot fix a substantive problem. It doesn't work. And the fact that the law continued to exist and that sacrifices were offered over and over and over again is proof in and of itself of the law's inability to fix the problem. I mean, that's his point. Look at the question he asks in verse two. Otherwise, if they could fix the problem, would they not have ceased to be offered? If they fix the problem, why do they keep being offered? The fact that they keep being offered shows they don't fix the problem. If they could fix the problem, after one offering, the worshipers would have been cleansed and wouldn't have any consciousness of sin. They wouldn't have the guilt still inside of them, and it would be done. That's his point. If the lawful sacrifices under the old covenant could perfect those who drew near through him, if those sacrifices actually fix the problem and cleanse the consciousness of those offering them or those drawing near through them, why would they still be offered? Wouldn't the people, if their sin had been truly, thoroughly forgiven, wouldn't they stop coming? It's not like every year a different group of people. Okay, if, if, if your last name is A through C, you come in, in 2021 and you offer your sacrifices. Okay, then, then D through F, then you come the next year. No, it's not a different group of people. It's the same group of people year after year after year who are having these sacrifices offered on their behalf. They came because the law demanded it, but they also came because they knew in their consciences that they were condemned that they stood guilty before the Lord, before the covenant God with, with whom they'd said, we will do all that the law commands. They knew in their hearts, we haven't. And so not only was the law just a shadow, the lawful sacrifices were ineffective. They kept the people coming back for more. 
The law and all of its requirements could not fix the problem. But notice another thing there in verse 3. Another thing about these sacrifices in verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. So not only are they just a shadow, not only were they ineffective, but they, they, in, in their, 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 uh, their, their greatest meaning and greatest purpose was simply to remind people of their sins. They're simply reminders. So, so, so they're never intended to, to cleanse or purify. They were simply given to serve as reminders and that they couldn't fix the problem. And that is his point. The fact that these sacrifices were offered year after year proved that they couldn't take away sins. Which is why he says in no uncertain terms, it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. It's impo- that, that, that means it doesn't happen. It, it, it can't do it. The law and its sacrifices were inadequate. And that's the main point of verses 1 through 4. The, the nature of these lawful sacrifices under the old covenant were insufficient. They could not take away sins. And so that's the point. That's the nature of lawful sacrifice. And before we move to our second point, I just want to pause and make one point of application here. And that, that is to highlight what is said when he says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the point of application is simply this. Impossible means impossible. Impossible means impossible. We, we, we have to see that. Just because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins, it doesn't mean that sins were not in need of cleansing or forgiveness. So, so we have to be careful not to miss the whole point of Hebrews here. Sins were in need of forgiveness. The, the covenant people had transgressed the clear commands. So, so they had transgressed. They had committed sins. They had rebelled. They hadn't kept their end of the bargain. So they had sins, and sins must be forgiven. And, and we, like them, are transgressors. We, like our, our father, Adam, have rebelled. We've transgressed the clearly revealed will of God. And so sins must be forgiven. Just like for them, same for us. Your sins, my sins, must be forgiven. Without the forgiveness of sins, there's no hope of fellowship with God. Without the forgiveness of sins, there's no hope of life, real, eternal life, true life. Without the forgiveness of sins, there's, there's no cleansed conscience. There's no knowing that God accepts you. And the point here, at least for the first readers, is that the place that they were most tempted to look for forgiveness of sins was not able to fix the problem. So when he says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, for, to, to bring about the forgiveness of sins, that addressed their greatest area of temptation. Because they thought, okay, we can, for, we, can, uh, we can fall away from Jesus, we won't be persecuted, and we can still get the forgiveness of sins through this old covenant. And he says, no, if you leave Christ, you miss it. This can't fix your problem. And so that was their temptation. I don't know about you, but I'm not tempted to find my forgiveness of sins in the offering of bulls and goats. That's not a temptation of mine. If that's yours, that's fine. But the point is simply that impossible means impossible. And so for us, any pathway to forgiveness that is not the pathway through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it cannot forgive your sins. And so any other way, so, so maybe it's not bulls and goats, but, but there is a way that humans tend to, to pursue reconciliation with God that is outside of Christ. And I simply want you to know, if you are trying to get right with God, if you're trying to be good, you're trying to fix things, you're trying to get your life together, apart from faith in Jesus, it won't do it. It can't. It is impossible. I want you to hear that word, impossible. 
And so all paths towards forgiveness that are not through Jesus Christ are impossible. No road leads to forgiveness other than the one that travels through faith in the Son of God who died for our sins. And so I don't know what your path is. Maybe it's good works. If I just do enough good things, if my good outweighs my bad, when I, when I come to die, if I stand before God, as long as my good outweighed my bad, then, then maybe he'll forget the bad. That doesn't work. Doing the right thing doesn't work. Being a good person doesn't work because you've, you're always going to have a standard that's subjective. So, so who is a good person? Who, who is a good person? Compared, who do you compare yourself to to say if you're good? Well, the, the bad guy in prison? Okay, yeah, you can win. But, but what about Mother Teresa? What, what about a good person? Well, I'm not good. So, so it's always moving goalposts if, goalposts if you're asking, I'm just going to be a good person. Maybe you think it's going to church, being baptized, saying a prayer, being a part of the right denomination. None of these things can bring about the forgiveness of sins. Maybe it's another religion, right? This is how the Christian worldview understands other religions. It's not all the same God, right? All of humanity is enslaved to sin, and there is one way for humanity's sins to be forgiven. That's through Jesus. It's not through the teaching of another. It's not. We, we, We can't not be honest about that. All of these other ways fail to bring about the forgiveness of sins, any path other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear this. The the sin solution, your greatest need is only met through the death of Jesus Christ. It is only met through him, but it is abundantly met through him. You are accepted in Jesus. Your sins can be fully forgiven, past sins, present sins, future sins, in Jesus Christ. And that is great news. It's not just great news for you, it's great news for me. Don't don't let this pulpit fool you. I need Jesus. I'm a great sinner in need of a great Savior. And so it's impossible for your sins or my sins to be forgiven apart from Jesus Christ and faith in him. Let's look, moving on to our second point, the nature of Christ's sacrifice. So he's already said the limited nature of the lawful sacrifice. Let's look there at verses 5 through 10, the nature of Christ's sacrifice. Now, in turning to the nature of Christ's sacrifice, he's contrasting the ineffective sacrifices under the old with the effective sacrifice of Christ in the new. And to do this, he turns, turns to Psalm 40. And as he quotes Psalm 40 and explains Psalm 40, he, he's understanding this. We've seen this earlier in, in Hebrews, but he's, he's understanding Psalm 40 Christocentrically. Or he's, he's re, it's like he's got his Jesus glasses on and he's reading Psalm 40 in light of what has come in Jesus. And so look there at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, so when Christ comes into the world, which this is a clear reference to his incarnation, when when Christ takes on flesh, he comes into the world, he said, so that's what the author of Hebrews is writing, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then the rest of Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, what Jesus said is a direct quote from Psalm 40. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's taking the words of Psalm 40, which are written before Jesus came into the world, and he's applying them to the lips of Jesus. So he's saying, Jesus said this. And, and if, if we're reading, we're like, well, wait a minute. Was Jesus actually speaking in Psalm 40? And on the face of the matter, no, of course he wasn't. It was, it was David. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 40 was writ- written from the, the mouth of David who was going through circumstances. And he was praying. This is his heart's cry. This is his prayer in Psalm 40. But what the author of Hebrews does, and he's not alone in this practice, He reads the Psalms. He he actually reads the entire Old Testament in light of Jesus. In other words, Jesus comes and gives fullness or completion to all that came before. So so things that were concealed in the old are now revealed. So Jesus is the spotlight that then can shine back and say, oh, 
That is what David was all about. And so Jesus helps him interpret the old, specifically Psalm 40. And so Jesus is the substance of all the types and shadows that preceded him. So here in this case, what David establishes in Psalm 40 is David is writing, specifically in in verses 4 and 8, and Jesus comes and fulfills everything that David talks about, specifically verses 6 and 8. So Jesus embodies all that David represented. So it's possible for Psalm 40 to be attributed to Jesus because the one pictured in Psalm 40 was a pointer to Jesus. And so he is the substance And so he can do this as a spirit-inspired author. He can read the Old Testament and he can say, this is what Jesus said. And so look there at verse five. When Jesus comes into the world, he said, so what what does he say Jesus says? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, the reason these verses are taken out of the middle of Psalm 40 is because these verses, verses 6, 7, and 8 of Psalm 40, make the point that he wants to make here in his argument in Hebrews. David, long before Christ comes into the world, David recognizes that sacrifices, whether burnt offerings or sin offerings, were not ultimately what God required. So he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. And so long before, so long before Jesus comes, David is saying, it's not about the sacrifices, it's about obedience. And, and maybe you remember before David was even king, remember King Saul, the first king who failed to obey the Lord. He failed to obey the prophet Samuel. You can write down 1 Samuel chapter 15. But Samuel, the prophet, says to Saul, Saul ta- takes things into his own hand and, and he thinks he knows what God wants. And so, so he disobeys God in order to offer these sacrifices And he clearly disobeys. And the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, he's not going to be king anymore because he disobeyed. And then the the prophet Samuel confronts Saul. Again, all this is in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But here's what the prophet says to the king who thinks, I did a good thing because I offered sacrifices. All these animals, I I offer them to the Lord. Here's what the prophet says to the king. This is before David even writes in Psalm 40. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? Behold, King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so that's the same point that David makes, probably remembering his predecessor Saul in Psalm 40. And just like David was driven to obey from the heart rather than simply to offer sacrifices, when Christ comes in the world as the greater David, the true David, the true king of Israel, the mission of Jesus is driven by a desire to obey. That's what drives the mission of Jesus. He is, a, he is, he is obeying the will of the Father. And so there in verse 8, notice he, he explains. Verse 8, when he said above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Parentheses, these are offered according to the law. Right? So you have no desire in these things. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. Sacrifices and sin offerings, one thing, that's not what you want, but I've come to do your will, contrasting what this was. Do you see? He came to do God's will, which was not ultimately sacrifices. That's why the author says he, talking about Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. So when Jesus comes into the world, his desire is to obey the will of the Father. Obedience is his mission, which means his mission is not 
offering sacrifices or sin offerings according to the law. That's not his mission. He doesn't come just to keep and follow the sacrificial laws. He comes to accomplish his father's will, to obey his father's will. And so Christ, upon entering the world, realized that God did not desire sacrifice or offerings. Instead, God summoned Jesus to sacrifice his own body for the sake of his people. Therefore, Jesus did not come into the world to offer animal sacrifices, but to give of himself. And so the Father does desire sacrifice. It's just not the ones according to the law. It's the ones that the obedience of the Son would lead to. And so obedience, in the case of Jesus, took precedent. And his sacrifice, which is the result of his obedience, is what takes priority. And so the words of verse 9, he does away with the first, with the Levitical sacrifices, and he establishes the second. And so the nature of Christ's sacrifice is that it was performed willingly in obedience to the will of God the Father. And that sacrifice was always the point. The new covenant was always the substance, the good thing that was to come. And in Christ, it has come. And so notice the difference, according to verse 10, between this old and new. And that, by that will, verse 10, the will of God that led to Jesus sacrificing himself, that will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more sacrifices needed. That's, that's his point. This is why Jesus is better. This is why his sacrifice is far superior to any others. It was once for all, and it perfected those who draw near through him. What the old could not do. And so that is the nature of Christ's sacrifice. Look, next third point, verses 11 through 14, the nature of priestly service. He's going to continue to draw this contrast. Look there at verse 11. What's the nature of priestly service under the old? Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service. What does he do? He's offering repeatedly over and over the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, it's easy to miss his point, but don't miss what he says. Every priest stands daily at his service. Standing is his point, I think. He doesn't sit down. He doesn't sit down because the priest of the old covenant, his work is never done. He stands. And he stands day after day after day after day. And he offers the same sacrifices over and over and over. It wasn't like you move from beginner level sacrifices to immediate level sacrifice to expert level sacrifices. The high priest on the old offered the same sacrifice and he never stopped doing it. Only time he stopped is when he died and then his son would start right where he left off. Standing daily. And this shows, the fact that the high priest would offer over and over, it shows, doesn't it, the futility of these sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. If they did, the priests would sit down. They'd retire and go to the beach. But they didn't. They stood day after day after day. But notice, don't miss the contrast of verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. That's the contrast. When, when Christ, the great high priest, the better high priest, when he offered himself once and for all, what does he do? He sits down. He sits down not to get up again, not to offer any additional sacrifice, but to sit down and to be done with sacrifices once and for all. This is a picture of contrast. This is, this is a, a statement, an image of finality. It is finished. He's sitting 
Christ offered a single sacrifice for all time. Did you notice that? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sits down. Christ offered a better sacrifice. He was the better sacrifice. He was the spotless lamb who who gave himself willingly. Don't miss that. He goes willingly to the cross. No coercion, no unwillingness. Quietly, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Willingly, the son goes to the cross. This was the better new covenant offering. This was the better priest and the better sacrifice. And he is now seated the divine son seated, ruling and reigning. And he's waiting for only one thing. Did you notice the one thing he's waiting for there in verse, verse 13? He's waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, the work is finished. The sacrifice has been made. Right? The, the very next verse, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And so, so he's done in his sacrifice what the limited old covenant sacrifices could not do. They had to be offered over and over and over because they couldn't perfect the worshiper. But this sacrifice offered, for Christ, offered by Christ is once for all because it's effective in a way that they weren't. It's effectual. It brings about what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't. And so the sacrifice has been made. The, the work is finished. Don't be confused. Christ is seated having finished his work. He's awaiting the full and final subjugation of his enemies under his feet, the the full subjection of those who oppose him under his feet. And so his enemies are defeated. Don't get that wrong, but but they are still wreaking havoc, aren't they? Look, Look around. Is Jesus ruling and reigning fully and perfectly? Of course he's not. His enemies are still wreaking havoc, but they're wreaking havoc like a snake whose head has been cut off. The head still wiggles a little bit, but its time is short. It's dead, or some people say it's like a gun that's shooting blanks. Can't do any permanent damage because it's been defeated. His enemies are defeated. Sometimes this, so, so there's this, this in between the times, the, 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 the payment has been paid, the, the sacrifice has been made, but we're still, so his enemies are defeated, but they're not fully defeated. We live between these times. And for some of you in this area, you're, you're probably familiar with military history, but, but this sometimes, I think really helpfully, is compared to the difference or the time between D-Day and V-Day. We all know D-Day, the storming of Normandy, the, 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 the battle that turned the war. The storming of Normandy and, and this decisive battle, the, the Allied troops, they win this, this, this theater in Europe. And this is June 6th, 1944. This is D-Day. It was a decisive battle, but, but the war wasn't technically officially over yet. It was, it was the battle that really decided it, but it wasn't over until May 8th, 1945, almost a year later. And that was V-Day. And that, that's, that, that takes place later in Japan, over in Japan. The war was over after D-Day. The, the writing was on the wall, but it wasn't over, over until V-Day almost a year later. You see, there's this in-between times. And so when, when prisoners of war hear about D-Day, they, they storm normally, they're coming for us. They, they can rejoice because they know it's over. They know that V-Day is coming. Or may, maybe if you, you'd rather a sports analogy, it's like what, what is sometimes called garbage time. You know, so, so your team's up by, depending on who your team is, the, the lead may have to be greater or lower. But, but say there's two minutes left in the NCAA tournament, your team's up by, by 25 points. Right? The winner has been decided. 
You put all, you put all your subs in so they can get, get, get minutes, they can get playing time, but, but the game's over, but, but the clock still has to strike zero. You're in between time. It's, no, one is, no one is confused as to who's going to win. Outcome is, is, is decided, but the clock still has to hit zero. That, that's what the price has been paid when it comes to Christ with his death. The outcome is secure. The game has been won. The enemies have been defeated, and it's only a matter of time. And so Christ doesn't have to get back up again to, to make sure he does something else. It's, it's been done. He's, he's waiting. The sacrifice has been offered. Sin has been forgiven, and it's only a matter of time. We await the full submission of all things to this ruling and reigning king. Finally, let's look at our last point there, verses 15 through 18, the new covenant hope. So to close out this, this entire section that's in, in verse one of chapter nine on the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ and the, the new covenant that's been instituted by his blood, the author goes again to the Old Testament and he references one of the most famous Old Testament passages that, that foreshadows or predicts the new covenant, the promise of a new covenant. And the Old Testament passage he goes to is Jeremiah 31. And so look there at verse 15. Notice before he even gets to quoting Jeremiah, notice what he says in, chapter, in, in verse 15 of Hebrews 10. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And so it's as if the, the author has been making his case and as if he needed more evidence support his, to support his argument. Now he says that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to what I'm saying, namely the necessity of a new covenant, of a better covenant, of a, a, a ending of the old covenant. And so he turns to the Holy Spirit. And when the, 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 the witness-bearing ministry of the Holy Spirit is not some new revelation, it's the promise that was given to Jeremiah. It's an old covenant promise. Jeremiah 31, under the old covenant, the spirit through Jeremiah says there's going to be a new covenant coming. And what's significant is that the author of Hebrews understands the Holy Spirit as the one speaking in Jeremiah. I mean, don't miss that. The Holy Spirit bears us witness. How? Where? In Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, of course, Jeremiah the prophet was the one whose words are recorded, but they're also God's words. This is the nature of the Bible. It's, it's unlike any other book. It's not just human words. It is human words, but it's not just human words. It is, there's a divine author. There are two authors for every passage of Scripture, but the divine authorship transcends every human author. So God is rightly understood as the author of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's not as though, hey, here's these human books and letters, and God's just going to say, hey, they're, they're special, I'm going to put my blessing on them. That's not the Bible. The Bible is exhaled from the very, from the very lungs of God himself. Exhaled, spirit-breathed. So that it can be said, the spirit said this. This is not just any book. These are not just normal human words. This is God-breathed. And so he turns to Jeremiah and says that this, the spirit bears witness and the Spirit in Jeremiah 31 predicts long before Jesus comes into the world a new covenant. And so he, he, lay, he, he places this new covenant promise that was made in Jeremiah 31 in this new covenant reality and says this was always predicted. And so what does Jeremiah say? Look at verse 16. He's quoting, here's, he's, he's quoting what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah 31, quote, This is the covenant I will make with them. So this is promising a new covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, 
Here's what's going to happen in the new covenant. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now, that's important, but that's not his point. His point is, verse 17, then he adds. So what does he say that's going to happen in the new covenant? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 17 is his point. That's the sentence that makes his case. The Spirit, through Jeremiah, says in the new covenant, there'll be no remembrance of sins or lawless deeds. When the new covenant is established, yes, I'm going to put my law in their hearts, write my law in their minds, but most importantly, I will remember their lawless deeds no more, which means their sins will be forgiven, gone, paid for, eliminated, cast as far away as the east is from the west, paid for, forgiven. That's something that will distinguish the new covenant from the old covenant. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been saying since chapter 9, verse 1. The death of Christ, which has established a new covenant, is a death, it's a sacrifice that actually deals with sins. It is an effectual sacrifice. It puts an end to all other sacrifices because it does something. It's not just a reminder, it's substantive. It actually accomplishes something. It does what all the thousands and thousands and thousands of other sacrifices couldn't do. Thus, this sacrifice that has established the new covenant renders every other sacrifice worthless. Why would you go to another sacrifice? That's futile, that's pointless, that's foolish, that is stupid. That's the Hebrew word he uses here. The forgiveness of sins is what's distinctive about the new covenant. And so, so Jeremiah 31 makes that point, and the author, after quoting Jeremiah, that's like his mic drop. He draws the ringing conclusion in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, which has been promised by the Holy Spirit, it's going to happen in the new covenant, which is come in Jesus, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. The sacrifice of Christ pronounces the forgiveness of sins, which means there's no need for any other sacrifices, which also means the old covenant has come to its appointed end. It's been replaced, no longer needed. Going back, in fact, to the old covenant with all its regulations and sacrifices misses the entire point of the old covenant and its shadow nature. And more importantly, it misses the, the point of forgiveness of sins. And so in this context, to embrace Christ and the new covenant is to turn your back on the old covenant. Because that was this whole point anyways. It was a shadow pointing to a better thing to come. When the better thing comes, you forget about the shadow. And so to embrace Christ in the new covenant is to forsake the old. Not because God didn't institute the old, but because God did institute the old as a way to prepare for the new. And so the new has come. And so for anyone, these readers, anyone, to forsake Christ and go to the old misses the point. The better covenant has come. Let me just close with two points of application here. First, point of application, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The old can't fix the problem. Don't turn back. So over and over, Will and I have have tried to apply this to our current situation, and we've said we're not tempted 
to, to go to other means. We're not tempted to go to the old covenant, but sometimes we're tempted to, to, to fall away from, from Christ for, for other things. And, and so we, we've tried to emphasize that and, and to identify well, what would cause you to turn away and forsake Christ. And, and that, those are right applications, and we ought to still continue to think that way. However, one application I was struck by this week it's not just the inability of other ways, which again, that I'm affirming those applications. I've made many of them. It's not just that. It's not just the inability of other ways, but it's also the ability of Christ. It's not just don't turn, don't fall away, stay firm, but it's also Jesus is better. He's better. And so for instance, we can say, don't eat junk food. Don't eat junk don't eat processed food. Don't do it. Don't do it. And, and that may work. And maybe that's helpful. Maybe when you're, when you're walking through the, the convenience or maybe that's what you need to tell yourself. But sometimes you just have to cultivate an appetite for healthy foods. And then you stop thinking about all the bad stuff. You're like, oh, I love asparagus. And so sometimes you just have to replace your appetite for unhealthy food with an appetite for good food. And so all I'm saying is, yes, we keep saying, don't turn away. There's, these other things can't deal, can't fix the problem. But sometimes you just need to say, Jesus is better. In fact, in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, a, a, a pastor named Thomas Chalmers wrote this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And that was his whole point. He was writing on the first John passage of don't love the world or things in the world. He said, okay, you can do this one of two ways. You can, you can load yourself, load your conscience with the bad of the world and say, don't love the world, don't love the world, don't love the world. He said that may work for a time, but he, he argues that won't work. Instead, you have to cultivate a new affection so that your, your, your affections are, are wrapped up in, in Christ and your affections are, are so over, overcome with Jesus that you, have no, you don't have any room in your heart for thinking don't love the world because you're overwhelmed with a love for Christ. It's a new affection that expels the old affections. And so I just want to positively say Jesus is better. Turn your eyes upon him. He's better. He's, he is healthy food. He will satisfy. He is enough. He's not always the first thing you're going to go to, but he is the thing you always need. He is better. And the second and last point of application before he closes is simply this. And, and this is from verse 14 where, where the author makes this statement that for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so I just want to talk, what does it mean? So he's perfected for all time. This is a completed thing. Those who are being sanctified, this is a process. And so, so both of these things are true. There's not contradiction there. So, so are we perfected or are we being sanctified? What is it? Right? We, we may be tempted to think, well, there's, well, which one is it? Well, both are true. One of the greatest comforts for believers is that we are perfected forever by the one offering of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. No sin is left unpaid for. The record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross, set aside and nailed to the cross. Past, present, future. Sin was paid for. We are forgiven fully. That, that's that's the, the, the idea, that's the, the theological uh, definition of justification. We are declared right, righteous, justified. Maybe you heard growing up, just as if I'd never sinned. That's justification. You are declared perfect, holy. We are united to Christ by nature of this union, by, by nature of us being in Christ, we are accepted so that when God the Father sees us, we are clothed in the righteousness of another so that we are received because of the perfection of Christ. 
I can't be good enough to be accepted. I must be accepted on the account of another. So I am perfected because of what Jesus has done. In this sense, I'm fully sanctified. I'm fully sanctified. I'm justified. Believers, here's one, one author says, believers are perfected because of the work of Jesus Christ, which includes his death, resurrection, and exaltation. Perfection then isn't fundamentally a subjective reality, but an objective one, denoting God's saving work in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. That's crucial. It is objective, it's outside of us. We are justified not by our works. We're justified by faith in Jesus who was crucified, buried, and raised for us. It is outside of us, it is, it is objective. But verse 14 also says, so that's, he has perfected, he's done it, the work is finished. We are, we are accepted before God. But he also says, those who have been perfected are being sanctified. This being sanctified, this process is, is what you might call the subjective reality. This is the outworking of what is already true. It's the outworking. So, so you, you may, if you don't know me, you should know this about me. I am declared righteous. I am justified. I am perfect in God's eyes because of the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to me. In my outworking, in my home, I am not righteous. I'm not. I, I'm better than I used to be, but I am not righteous. I am being sanctified. I am in process. And so the objective reality is, is we are perfected, but the subjective reality, our experience is, is we are being sanctified. We're still on the road. No one who claims the name of Christ is perfect, has accomplished perfection in this life practically. It just doesn't happen. We're all going to be in process. This is why we ought to be gracious, gracious with one another. We're all in process. Your spouse is in process. Your kids are in process. Your parents are in process. Your church members are in process. We're being sanctified. But here's the thing, and here's where we're closing. It comes back to the message of Hebrews. The reason that I fight for holiness, the reason that I struggle against my old man, against the indwelling sin, is because of what Christ has done on the cross. I fight because Christ has won. I fight because the king is sitting down. I fight because the enemy is living on borrowed time. And so I fight, yes, I fight, but I do so not pretending that I'm going to accomplish something that hasn't already been accomplished. I make progress. I'm sanctified. We're sanctified little by little because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the way. We are great sinners here. I am a great sinner, which could be bad news. And it could, it could be really discouraging. Maybe you are discouraged. Well, hear this. It would be really discouraging if it were not for the fact that Jesus is a great Savior. He is. He came to seek and save the lost. He came for the sick. He came for the heavy laden. He came for those who know that they need him. And those who need him who come to Christ are saved. And we are saved completely. And we are saved forever because he is a great savior who laid down his life for us once and for all. Let's, let's pray.